Hi everyone, welcome to the Yam Podcast. My name is Naha Hachman and we are honored to bring to you one other episode of the Yam Podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have our own mama in the house. One of our OGs of the Mama Comfort Toolkit is here being interviewed. It was really amazing. Like initially when I did the Mama Comfort Toolkit interviews, I said that the only requirement is for you to have a child between the ages of zero and five or be pregnant. And Mona Green was our only pregnant mama. And what was amazing was her story of how she gave birth. Like before, when I spoke to her, she was really distraught and she was in a place where she was trying to figure things out. And basically this podcast is her full story of what happened thereafter. And we spoke for so long. And so we're gonna actually split this podcast into two parts, part one and part two. So I can't wait for you guys to hear one of our very own mama's experience. Woohoo, let's start guys. Hi, everyone. My name is Nahal Hachbin. I am the host of the Yam podcast. And today we have a very special guest. As you guys already know, the whole Yam podcast came about by me interviewing 30 women for this product called the Mama Comfort Toolkit, which I am actually a finalized today. And by the time this episode comes out, it will already be live, but you will be able to enjoy it tomorrow, actually. Anyways, so. The Mama Toolkit, like of all the 30 people that I did, I wanted to do interview like pregnant women and also like women who had children from the ages of zero to five. I don't know what happened, but I didn't get to interview a lot of pregnant women. In fact, you were the only one. And pregnancies are like my jam. Like that's where I like want to love and just cherish like mamas like the most. And so I was a little sad about that, but I was so happy to have you. So you were like my precious gem (laughs) of the interview. And you shared so many beautiful things with me that I was like, wow, like the number of challenges or stresses on a pregnant mother are so much that it's so funny that we think motherhood is like the mothering of it because you have an older child and you were pregnant with the second one. So the last time we spoke, you were pregnant. Now you are no longer pregnant. And so I'm super excited in this conversation to not only share what you shared with me before in our interview, but also your birth process, which is actually related to it and now how you're doing. So, oh my gosh, any woman listening to this right now is like, this is like for you to even show up is honestly, it's, I commend you. I commend you for just even being here because you're in the trenches and all the mothers know that you are in the trenches right now. So like for you to come on and to do this podcast is amazing. So I will give it up to you, my love. Please tell us what your journey has been like when your pregnancy started. Okay. Hi. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Oh, sorry. Like maybe introduce yourself a little bit so that people have a, know a little bit about your background and whatnot. 
Yeah, my name is Mona Greenspoon. I am in, I live in Bangkok, Thailand. And so I have a daughter of a three-year-old, a three-year-old daughter now. And then my son is now four months old. Yeah. And yeah, so that's me. <laughs> Tell us a little bit also about your background in your work. What did you do before you were mommying? Because I find that really fascinating. Oh, so just before before I was pregnant with my daughter, I was like in acting, singing in that area of work, and then and then actually my the company that I worked for closed down, and while I was pregnant with the first one, and oh, then wow. I started. <laughs> it was so stressful. So was it? This had nothing to do with COVID, though, right? Like it just closed down. No, this was a couple of years back. This is when I had my first daughter, and then okay, then I started opening a school with my friend that didn't work out as well, and so finally, I actually found the job that I loved the most, which is working for the Office of External Affairs of the Baha'is of Thailand, and I followed the discourses in the society. Mm. And at the moment, what we're really focusing on right now is the inequality, social and economic inequality in Thailand. Mm. And so it's the work that, yeah, it's very dear to my heart. Yeah. Can you actually tell us a little bit about that? What kind of a society you're living in? Because I think that is going to really put the foundation of your challenges. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, it was the main <laughs> challenge of my okay so maybe I'll maybe I'll share with you about okay so Thailand is a very it's a capitalist society so but you guys have a monarchy too I don't think a lot of people know this that you have a king you have a queen you have a princess and they're all very like active within like society right yeah so they do a lot of things they have a lot of foundations and although like right now everything is very sensitive regarding the, the, the monarchy, monarchy. Mm, yeah interesting uh, and the politics yeah and i guess that's one of the reasons like people are a little bit upset about this inequality mm. in thailand and a lot of people are really struggling and yet only one percent of the population in thailand has majority of the wealth of the country so the inequality what is it which what is the inequality is it wealth just like the or just like access like if you're not cool like you don't get jobs and or does it have to do with like race do does thailand have like different races or not really not really like there there are regions and then there are prejudices towards different regions different a little bit of a, a couple of tribes but i think the compared to other countries around us let's say malaysia right it's really like diverse whereas thailand everyone's like Thai, but the, the tradition slightly differs for each region i think the main inequality that people feel it's it's regarding wealth as a capitalist country, right? It runs a lot like on wealth. And then also education, also access to things, to technology. Mm. And so there's a couple of things like urban settings and the countryside. Rural settings, yeah. Yeah, in yeah. So those kind of every tiny like details, it just adds up to a big chunk of inequality and it's being felt throughout the country yeah 
So how are people responding to those inequalities? Is there, what do you call it, protests and stuff? Like, how are they going yeah, about so, doing that? Yeah, I guess there are, are many groups of people who tries to tackle this. There are different foundations that do researches on this. There are youths on the street protesting. There are people talking about it. Yeah, there are influencers who come up with contents to educate people yeah and yeah and I, I and as what what our office is following up we can see that there are some underlying causes which is one is like prejudice right and there are Thailand is such a a, a country that is very you stick up for your friends mm. so it's so your friends first and other people later there's kind of cult like tradition and also oh so you mean like the chinese version of like is like relationships like you protect the people that you know first and then yeah. the greater got it got it got it okay so then we are not like really looking at everybody as one and as equal mm. and everybody also has their capacity and also can and should have access should have equal access to to be able to improve themselves develop themselves academically and other areas as well and also the prejudices that is going around poor people having prejudices towards the rich people mm-hmm. also the same way so there are a couple of a lot of underlying issues that in terms of in what do you call that in the psyche of the country <laughs> Yeah, it's it's deeper than just the actual issue, but it's in the consciousness of the society. See, this is I love talking about this so much because I don't think a lot of people even think about Thailand in terms of what the country is actually going through. Like maybe more enlightened people are, but at least for myself, like I'm asking these questions because I genuinely don't know. I go to Thailand for vacation, so I'm like enjoying the beaches and like the beautiful hotels. And like, I don't really have an opportunity to really get to know the local people unless I'm actually going to visit like the Baha'i community, which I did. And I visited their centers and it was wonderful. So yeah. So tell me a little bit about how, what you guys are doing in order to tackle this and also how that influences your life. I also wanted to mention for the listeners, for those who cannot see Mona Green Spoon, she is half... Thai half white I believe am I correct yeah I'm half Canadian and Thai half Canadian and Thai so your mom is Thai and your dad is Canadian yeah although my dad likes to say that I'm a hundred percent Canadian and I'm a hundred percent (laughs) Thai so what is that like for you to live in Thailand because your husband is full tie what is that like with you two together but also just you in general like I would imagine is going with the privilege of or like just every other country that if you're half white you're seen as a little bit like cooler or like you get more privileges than a Thai person would I don't know if that's the case for you too I think so I think so but for me what is really obvious that is what I have as a privilege is the language I can understand English better than other Thais and I feel like being able to understand English you are open to a whole new world a a whole yeah and you can get through to so much knowledge in the world 
Mm-hmm. And whereas if you are, if you, your English, if you cannot really understand English, that then you don't have that access to knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that's really sad. Yeah, I think, yeah, that is also another inequality as well of the world. Like people are limited to, um, to what they can know, even though they want to know so much more. But if they're limited by language, then it blocks their progress. It's true. But you also do so much service with your ability to speak in English and in Thai as well. So it's like the responsibilities, I feel like, that go to you to support other people, I think is also, I don't want to say a burden. It is a privilege, but I think also you have to carry a lot. Like I say this firsthand, like having seen this from you, like the way, even just like the, when we met, The way we met was actually I was working with the Royal Thai Army on an influenza project. So I went to Thailand for work and research. And then there was a holy day or a feast or something, or I wanted to just go to the Baha'i Center and meet the Baha'is. And then I got in touch with you or someone put me in touch with you. And then I went to the center and you were the one who was translating for me the whole evening. (laughs) (laughs) like Mm -hmm. what was happening. And so I would not have understood or known anything had you not shared that with me. This is for outsiders. I'm not important. I'm like just a visitor passing by. But I would assume that also if anyone were to come visit you or visit Thailand, that everyone would look to you for, they would almost expect it from you. They wouldn't even ask because it's just, okay, Mona's the only one who can do this. Yeah, it's. I feel... I don't know, because I also speak Mandarin as well. So I, I feel like this is a lot of the time. Maybe I'm speaking my own pain here. I feel like this happens quite a lot with me. So I don't know. I don't know if that's the same with you as well. Oh, I think that like it's not just me in Bangkok who can speak English. There are many Baha'is in Bangkok. And also the people in Bangkok, their English is getting like really good some are way better than my English but I think as I I mentioned earlier that because of English I have more access to education and knowledge and that also includes the Baha'i writing and so I could understand it when you translate it sometimes it loses meaning because each language would 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 have the vocabularies for the concepts that they are they think about or mm. work with. And so some of the concepts in one language doesn't like it doesn't exist in another culture. So then yeah, and so by by being able to read the English version of it, of the writings, then we can draw on more inspiration. And there are so much more in English than what has been translated to Thai. Mm. So I think being able to serve more is also because I got this advantage of being mm-hmm. able to learn more and mm. learn more. Wow. So how many books are have been translated in, into Thai? There are many. <laughs> or tell me the ones that haven't, <laughs> if it's a shorter list. Well, or like yeah, ones so- that you like, you're like, oh, this is a really good book that like they keep, they don't have access to. Do you have your favorites? Okay, for example, the Palmigration of World Peace. Mm. Um, For your work, uh, I would imagine that would be really important. Yeah, the Seven Valley. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's the best. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, I would Uh, die if that was not there. Oh, my gosh. 
Yeah. Also, Shogi Effendi's book on Advent of the Divine the... Justice. Okay, we don't have that too, but there's another <laughs> one, a lot on the Master as well. World um, Order of Baha'u'llah. Mm-hmm. I can't, I cannot remember it oh my right goodness. now. Yeah. Seven Valleys. That was a painful one to hear. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> oh no. Oh, there are gosh. many. Uh, okay, what are like the Paris talks? Some answered mm-hmm. questions. We have those. We have okay. The, the Kitabi Yes. Okay. Um, Good. And the prayers and the hidden words, definitely. Oh, thank um, God. Okay, great. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. And the Ruhi books, of course. <laughs> yes. Yay. <laughs> what are the Ruhi books? Tell tell the people, the listeners who are not familiar with the Ruhi books or actually any of the other books that at least the other books, they had titles. But the Ruhi books are like a sequence of courses, which the Baha'i community does. But I'll let you share a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's a, as you said, it's an, a sequence of courses that helps us to see what can we do to help the society around us. And we want the world to be in such a state that we have peace and harmony and people are like one family. But I think the Ruhi gives me that hope that as we learn about ourselves, we learn about others around us, and we learn how to be able to be of service to the people around us then we can go closer to that vision that we have. Yeah, and so it's like a community base and bringing people in the community together and have have this new culture of consultation within the families and within the community. So what that looks like is like groups of people coming together to talk about the Baha'i writings. People who come are not just Baha'is, like they're people at all peoples in the community and they come and consult on the Baha'i writings on how to build a vision of a greater world. Like one of the first quotes in the first book one, I actually don't know if it's the same in the new book one, I have yet to take in, but the betterment of the world can be accomplished through pure and goodly deeds, through commendable and seemly conduct. And so the basically the Ruhi sequence starts off with that question. And I feel like that's like the foundation of the whole sequence of us discussing what that actually means and how can we apply that into our lives. So if every anyone wants to actually study this in your localities, anywhere you are, you will be able to find a Ruhi study circle. I've actually told several women over the 30 interviews that I did about this because they were actually asking about children's spiritual education. And I was like, oh, the third book is about children's spiritual education. And just the other day, actually in, in Dalian, in one of the friends company, they were actually introducing the third book, like the book about building, I don't know what it's called, but it's about children's developing how to develop their spiritual qualities in a company of 150 people and to get them And the parents, the people, the workers who were there, who are parents, anyone who wanted to join to come together to study this book, Mm because the only thing that they would talk to their boss about, they would have this round table and they would talk to them about always their children and like how things about their child stressed them out and stuff. And so the boss was like, let's get together and study this book. So 
literally anywhere you are, you would be able to find this. So Ruhi is spelled R-U-H-I. If you Google it and type in like your city location, where you can do this, I'm sure there's going to be contact numbers and things that are going to pop up. So just thought I would let that everyone know that. So yeah. Okay. They have put it up on the Ruhi website as well. And just download the books in different languages. Mm-hmm. You can just yourself with your friends get a group of people guys and just get together and have a chat it's amazing okay so let's i did not expect for us to speak about (laughs) thailand for this long but i love it because i'm like i'm interested in this so i absolutely love it but i think this is where this is a good time for us to go into all right now that the listeners have a little bit more context of what thailand is like and all these things, and what are going in the society that you are in, take this home with us to your personal experience. Like what, how does the structure of the land, how did it affect you? Yeah. Okay. So maybe to, before I answer that question, maybe I should also give at least my reading of reality of how the society what society what perception does the society have on birthing Mm. and and i think that would also contribute to the story and i think this is so amazing because every country like the way they view birth and like just the birthing process is so different even with me like when i was working in china in the maternity hospital, even going from the, like the Northern China to the Southern China, like their practices were like great. It was almost going to like a whole different country. So I can relate, but please do continue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Thailand in the past, people used to just give birth at home with the, what do you call that? The, not the doula, the midwife, the midwife. And then when, when the hospitals took over birthing process, then they made it, they made like midwife and giving birth at home illegal. So there's none of those. Oh, wow. And there's a lot there's a lot that that goes on in how everything is a dangerous matter. There's even a ghost movie that yeah, based on this lady who gave birth when the husband was away in war and then she died with her baby as well at home. Oh. That is the perception that the image that the people have about birthing mm. that it's dangerous it should be done at the hospital and all that and even in hospitals there's a lot of okay so there are public hospitals there are private hospitals and there are like like another class like a really like luxury luxury hospital okay and when i had my first child i went to the private hospital, the middle one. These private hospitals, they do make a lot more money doing cesarean section rather than like natural birth. And then at that time, we we were like, should we knew that the doctor wasn't supportive towards the end? Maybe around week 36, from week 36, then we could tell that she was like, the baby is too big. You are too small. I don't think you will be able to have natural birth. Mm. So then we started to go 
going to see other doctor at the luxurious hospital because the luxurious hospital has a name for natural birth because mm. uh, it caters to expats community in Thailand. And so it's really expensive. At that point, we were like, should we go to that hospital or should we continue with the doctor that we are that we have been seeing so far? So we decided that it's too expensive, and I will be able to deliver my own baby, my own child, on my own, and I'll be strong. <laughs> That's what I thought. And then, and then we continued with the same doctor. And then by the time that I was in labor, it was just, it was really difficult. And at that point, it was just me on my own with my husband and the doctor and the nurses will be like, yeah, would you like to do a system? In, in that time, I'm sure many moms who have been through <laughs> that point. Yeah, so it was like, it was almost 24 hours that I was in. Oh. Finally, in the morning, when the when my actual doctor came in, he, I was on a phone with my, my very good friend. I look at her as my sister. So she was like, doctor, can she still try a little bit more? Can she go on a little bit more? Then the doctor was saying that, like, she was asking, like, when is the limit? And so the doctor was like, it is already way past the limit. So at that point, I was like, cut me. I was like, I cannot go on with this anymore. Yeah, I was like, okay, I'm going to do a C-section. So then that was quick, very quick. The doctor was like, sign this, let's go, boop, cut, done. Then they brought my daughter over. And at that point, I just couldn't look at her. I felt so ashamed. Like I felt like I... Yeah, I felt like I wasn't strong enough. I didn't if I could still go on, then perhaps I would be able to get through it, and then I could have a natural birth. Yeah, so I felt really sad. I was like, there were literally like tears in my eyes. It's the first time I meet her. I'm so happy to see her, but at the same time, I felt so bad. And even after delivery, I felt down. And yeah, and so. I think he needs to to have some milk. <laughs> oh, just one second. I'll just go and get my baby, and then and then yeah. Just Sounds great. The realities of motherhood, guys. I'm sure you can relate. After I I delivered her and everything, I was resting, and the next day I was still sad. I was still like really sad. And then my sister told me about. VBAC and how I should still do a VBAC for the second child because what's a VBAC? VBAC is VBAC is vaginal birth Mm. after cesarean section so I could still go for a natural birth okay and maybe I'll just share with you why I felt so down I just I think as many women out there also feel like it's it's the it's natural it should be it's something that we should be able to do it's something that we were created that way and so i just thought that i should be able to do it too but of course there are complications and there are things and that maybe prevent and just just for other ladies not to 
<laughs> as you listen to this, not to also think that this is the only way for your child or children to be born. Yeah. But anyway, that, that was the state of mind that I was in. Okay. So then that's when I decided that if I have a second child, definitely I will do, I will have this be back. I will still try for natural birth. And yeah, and then I got pregnant again. Yeah. Should I just go on or would you like to <laughs> go for it? I have nothing. I just wanted to let you know, I don't think anyone listening to this podcast is going to be judging you. So that's all I just wanted to say is that they're going to be like, just sending you good vibes and good hearts and just being like, it's hard and it's painful labor. So I don't think even people who did natural birth, I don't think they're going to judge you to be like, they're like, I know how painful it was, girl. You do. You just do what you needed to do. Yeah. And okay. So maybe what the doctor told me before I went into, into cesarean section is that she said that my daughter's head is on stuck on the pelvis. It's oh. on the one it's already side. Dropped. The, uh-huh. It's dropped, but it's like on the pelvis. It doesn't go through but it's, it's on the side. Mm. Okay. So, okay. Then, so I thought it might have been a real medical reason I, or not. I wasn't sure. Or it was like, I could still carry on and do it. So I always had that in mind. And also doctor said that I am short. I am a petite lady. And yeah. The, Your vajayjay is broken. Therefore. My is not <laughs> and my daughter was too big that's what my doctor said yeah okay now I I tried to contact like hospitals that could do VBAC in Thailand and then I know for sure two hospitals which is the luxurious one and caters to the expats community and so I called them and I asked them about the price and all that and I thought it was like about 12 no 120,000 baht which is which is 440 is it 40,000 dollars 30 30 baht 1 dollar 30 baht yeah that makes sense 40,000 US yeah and so then I but it wasn't sure but I was thinking okay that hospital and it's still very expensive to yeah to have natural birth so I did a lot more research I looked at many hospitals and then I came across this article that was written by a doctor and this article was explaining what is TOLAC and what is VBAC so I I got in touch with the hospital and they said that to come in and talk to the doctor yourself if you're able to do a VBAC. And so I went in and I met the doctor and the doctor said that, yes, like she can definitely help me with the VBAC. And so I've been like meeting with her. So wait, what is a tollback for the listeners who don't know, including myself? <laughs> it's a trial of labor after cesarean so you go for a tolac you go for a trial of labor after cesarean and if you succeed then you had a vagina vaginal uh, birth va- yeah vaginal after cesarean yeah yeah vaginal so, birth after cesarean 
So how is that different to a VBAC? It's just the state that you're in. If let's oh, say okay. you are laboring and that you're in TOLAC, once you've completed, then you've done VBAC. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. So it was like the process of that. Okay. It was the step yeah. before a VBAC basically. Okay. Awesome. I think so, we're good now. <laughs> we all yeah, understand. So, <laughs> yeah. And then, and okay. Another thing is when I call, when I call the hospitals, then they don't know what VBAC is like in Thailand, like not many people know. And then when I said that I'm going for a vaginal birth, they all will be like, no, once you've done cesarean section, that's it. You have to continue cesarean section. And then I'm like, no, actually, no. You know that there are many countries that do VBAC and they're very successful. The rates are really high. And yeah, so it has been like a really like educational process for people around me as well. You really did a service to mankind. I would say that you're being humble with the amount of research that you were doing. Like you had spreadsheets and stuff like that. You said that you called like 40, 40 something hospitals around Thailand to get this information. Like she did. I feel like you're an expert and everyone should come to you to ask questions about this. Cause I feel like you would know mama, you would know. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm like I've had like help. Oh, 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 oh. No, no, no. No, no, no. Okay, sorry. Oh, good. Every mother knows what a spit up sound sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, oh, okay, cool. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. So that point, I didn't do that much research at that point. After I found this hospital, then I stopped. I thought that she would be the one who would help me. And yeah, and then oh, oh, there's another factor that I forgot to tell. Mm. My 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 daughter, my first child was almost 42 weeks she she was born at almost 42 weeks mm -hmm. and that was already like really difficult to persuade the doctor not to cut me yes okay anyway so then so talking to, tell people yeah. who are who might have never been pregnant before like what does 42 weeks mean is that like over the usual weekage of a pregnancy yeah, so actually for like women are pregnant up to 40, 40 is a estimated term and that's your due date, but it's estimated because it's not sure. It, the doctor cannot be sure when did the, what's that? The sperm and the embryo like hatched. Yeah. The term conception, conception. They, can, like, they cannot be sure of when the conception really takes place so mm -hmm. it's estimated and most of people most of the people give birth be, like two hours or two hours about two weeks before due date or two weeks after so like in that period the most I know like in many countries they don't consider 42 weeks late mm. they after 42 weeks onwards, then they will say that it's late. But in Thailand, if, if you don't deliver at 40 weeks, then they will say that it's late. Because one of the concerns is that the baby might 
swallow amniotic uh, fluid the poo poo that's uh -huh. the word for poo. so their intestine will like would be fully developed some, people, some babies who already developed will already start poo pooing and so they might yeah they might be micronium yeah okay. so they, they might swallow my micronium which is a, a very small percentage but it can mm -hmm. also be dangerous so doctors tend to say that if by 40 you don't you don't go into labor then we should cut you got it yeah i love this thing i'm gonna cut you like that's so it's so <laughs> archaic but yeah please it's just a reality like literally that's literally what they do they cut you <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay and okay so then with the second child then one of the there are some certain factors that you have to pass also in order for my doctor to 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 allow me to do a VBAC okay what were the conditions so I had not, not for, I shouldn't be pregnant after, like I should deliver before 40 weeks. Mm. I, the baby shouldn't be too big. There's no other complication. My center wall it shouldn't be too thin. And so, yeah, there are those things. And, and then towards, like later on, when I met her, she was like, you should be able to, you should go into labor at 39 weeks. And then with my second pregnancy, I had many supporters. I told my friend who is really passionate about birth. And yeah, she would love to become a doula. And so she has really encouraged me through. And then I had an, and then her doula also supported me. And then mm. I had a midwife that I was like, that I did. Acupuncture? Acupuncture with her because my my older daughter would not come out so I was like trying to find every way <laughs> so I met her yeah from that and so then when I discussed with other people around me and then they shared how 39 weeks is not very not very not a very good sign that she will really support me because it's unlikely that if the first pregnancy I did, I went into labor almost at 42 weeks. Then mm. the first before 39 weeks, that's mm. unlikely. Unlikely. Oh, then and then there are things that she was the doctor was sharing about the placenta wall in the research said that it should be more than three centimeters or three millimeters. But my doctor said it shouldn't be less than five. And then mine was getting thinner and thinner as my baby was growing bigger and bigger and then my baby was getting heavier and that doesn't seem right this that doesn't seem right mm. and that's when I don't think I can continue with this doctor this doctor is going might not really support me then I asked her how many VBAC have you done then she said and I wish I had asked that from the start I yeah later much later and she said that she she had two two failed VBAC yeah and the mother didn't go through with it and then one successful one and so the midwife and the doula and my friend they were like 
that is nothing. That is that's not someone who's experienced. Yeah. I'm sure she could do it. I'm really sure, but but I'm not sure if she's confident enough. And exactly. So, okay. If you have more failures so, than you do successes, then like also you want to ensure the safety of the mother. So that wouldn't be a good reputation to have for a doctor to. Yeah. I don't know what failed VBACs mean if the mother was lost entirely, but or just no, no, that no. she had to do a C-section. Is that what that? Yeah. Feels? <laughs> Thank God. What, Thank God. What she said was that she said that the mother didn't go through with it. I think maybe like she, Got the mother was so in pain and that. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So I, I then searched for other hospitals and I went to visit in that luxurious hospital and then the doctor was the doctor was so nice she I shared with her that financially it's not possible for me to pay yeah like really that much for delivery and yeah so anyway so that time she was like okay maybe she'll let the nurse try to see how much it is so then the nurse went and came back and then gave me the price that that meeting with the doctor didn't charge me for it because she was really kind and she knows how much i would i want that i wanted to be back and then it the bill came and the invoice came and it was 160 something 64 i think thousand baht up to 200,000 baht. So that was more than the other hospital that like did it. Oh, shoot. Yeah. So that was like more like 50,000, 60,000 US dollars. Yeah. Yeah. For a natural birth. And then after that, I went to another hospital and I checked and the prices were about the same. Mm. I went to another hospital, which, which is cheaper. And I wanted to go visit the doctor. They didn't even let me see the doctor. They were like, you're too big now. Because by the time I decided that, oh, I have to switch doctors. Yeah. Yeah. Then I was already 36 weeks. And so at that point, then, yeah, the doctor won't even meet me. And I didn't have the chance to explain myself or anything. They were like, you're too big. Mm. And then because of COVID, they also limit the number of patients as well. Yeah. And so they... They try not to accept new cases, especially when they're so far along. Okay. And so it was, yeah, that was like one of the hope. And then it was gone. <laughs> then I, then after that, I decided to call all the hospitals. That's when the oh. <laughs> calling. Yeah. Then I called all the hospitals. I asked about VBAC. And then around Thailand, after, call all the hospitals around Thailand. So, yeah. Okay. Got it. And then I had other friends in, the, in different parts mm-hmm. of Thailand. And then I, my friend suggested, why not try to find like other ho- hospitals outside Bangkok? I didn't think that was possible because my support system is in Bangkok. My home mm-hmm. is here. And I already thought of how I would, how my daughter would be with her friends, would be at her friend's house and all that. So I didn't like think of that. But then, okay, then why not? Let me try. And at that point, this talk about inequality, I was really in this course on inequality in Thailand. And that really brought me so down. Like what I wanted for myself is not something luxurious. 
I didn't want anything unnatural. I didn't want anything that is that. <laughs> you weren't asking yeah. too much. Yeah. I was just asking to have a, a natural birth, which I'm the one doing the work. <laughs> which, and yeah, but it wasn't possible because I didn't have the money to do that. I didn't have the fun to go to that luxurious hospital that they would help me deliver. Yeah. So then I was really sad about that. And then when my friend suggests to call other parts, other areas of Bangkok, uh, other go to some somewhere else in, in Thailand, then ask around. And then I, ha- I have one friend who is very close with the on- oncologist. Oncologist is gynecologist, obstetrics. Oncologist is like for cancer. The doctor who delivers babies. Obstetric doctor. Okay. Yeah. So she has friends who study this, and then she asked her friend, and then her her friend said, "Why don't you try Chiang Mai? It's a very traditional place, and then mm. they support natural." And then I call different hospitals in Chiang Mai. Nope. Nope. No. Finally, I there's one more place, but they asked me to call on Monday. At that time when I was calling other hospitals, it was on Saturday. I didn't, yeah, so then I just had to wait until Monday, but other hospitals didn't do it. So then when I called this hospital, it's, it's a, what do you call that? Like a, a learning hospital? Like a te- yeah. teaching hospital? teaching hospital yes and so then I called them on Monday first thing in the morning and then they say oh yeah we do it like it's not something yeah normal thing and then I was like really you do and then I asked and I keep calling them to make sure and then every time I call you are you still gonna say the same thing if I go there I will be coming from Bangkok and at that point Bangkok was the red zone for COVID and then if I go there and then I had this experience that they turned me down because I was too far along yeah I wanted to make sure that they won't turn me down yeah and so this come very early this time try to get into they only accept five new people every morning okay so then so that was monday i was 36 weeks and then then on on tuesday oh then myself my my husband and my family then we plan to leave for chiang mai right away on wednesday and but on tuesday at night time i had a sharp pain right around my incision site because that's one of the worries why people don't go for natural birth after they have cesarean section is there is a risk of the bursting of the yeah yeah but although it's a very low percentage but that's what they but there's more percentage in in women who has already like done cesarean section okay so then i then i went to i decided not to travel yet and I went to visit my doctor again. And then when I went to see my doctor, I didn't share with her what, what's wrong that I had sharp pain on the incision side. But I wanted her to check like how thin is the wall. And it's mm. still fine. It's still the same width as the last time I visited her. Thickness. And, yeah. and everything seemed fine. Everything was fine. 
then and at that point she was like no you don't have to go into labor by 39 weeks but in like in the in the week in the 39 week you should already start having uh, some sign of labor yeah then to deliver by 40 weeks so it was like oh okay maybe should i still go on with her everything is packed in the car everything mm. the bag everything packed we're ready to take our journey up to the north which will be nine hours drive and then i'm <laughs> for a pregnant then, woman how many weeks were you at that point i think th- turning 37 i think i already turned 37 at that time got it yeah so yeah I think on Monday, I would have turned like 37. Hmm. And so my, then me and my husband, we were so reluctant. What should we do? Should we go up to Chiang Mai or should we continue with this doctor? We have friends, we have that and this. If we go to Chiang Mai, what if they reject us? What if it's not what we want? Okay. So then I discussed with everybody. I discussed with my friend, with all, with my midwife, with the new doula, with my friend and my close friends, my dad, my mom. Like I discussed with everyone, what should I do? And then I called, I discussed with one of the nurse who is in Chiang Mai, but not exactly there. She's on the hill, like she's in the hill tribe area. Mm. And she said, oh, we do it for the you try mother they usually come in and even herself she's done VBAC many times and I'm like wow like I was really like I was really excited to hear that yeah what a comfort then, yeah yeah <laughs> you're just a total but then I couldn't decide still I couldn't decide then I actually sat down and I prayed <laughs> that's what you do when you're in that situation <laughs> And I prayed and then after I prayed, I meditate a little bit. I imagine what it would be like. I imagine the birthing process. If I delivered here, I imagine if I delivered there, what will it be like? And then one thought that was that came to mind is safety. And I needed safety. That is the most important yeah. um, factor. And, and then I thought, okay. Let's say if something wrong happens, where will I be able to be safe? Where will, where will it be the safest for me? And then at that point, I felt like it was Chiang Mai that would be the safest place because they have done it so many times. They have they are equipped with doctors, with not only just like doctors, but the professors and also the students and everyone. Yeah. So I thought that it would be a safer choice. So we drove up <laughs> that evening and then mm. we arrived at 2 a.m. in the morning. And I think it was a great decision that I made, not only because I was in Bangkok, COVID was so hard and depressing and going to Chiang Mai and it's a bit freer. And then I get to see nature. I get to see good friends and the sister the friend who is who I admire as a sister lives in Chiang Mai who was with the phone call with me the whole night when I had the older child yeah so yeah so then I don't know who she is but God bless her heart because that must have been such a comfort for you too I like her already I like her already (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, I like her a lot too. Okay, <laughs> so when I was in Chiang Mai, I went and I visited the hospital and yeah, the doctor thinks everything is fine. And then, oh, okay. The first thing that the nurse spoke to me after like she has reviewed me, she was like, your due date is 40 weeks, but not all women deliver at 40 weeks. It might be 41, 42. She, and then she just said so naturally, whereas if I went to other doctors in Bangkok, they would be like, at 40 weeks, if you don't deliver, you're you out. Be on yeah. <laughs> yeah sorry we i missed that what you would be on the what on the ready bed. for the doctor to to chop you up yeah <laughs> <laughs> like a piece of meat yeah yeah and then so that was really comforting and then when i met the doctor was like she said that oh we usually do natural birth unless there is some other issue um, like risk or something like that mm. then that's the time that they they would they will up for c-section and so that was another point that I felt like, oh, it was such a confirmation that I got from Amazing. going to And okay, so then I was there waiting to induce labor, like the natural wing. Then I had a lot of Braxton Hicks, especially like in this um, second pregnancy. I had it since so early in my pregnancy. Can you but share with people who don't know what Braxton Hicks are? What is it? So Braxton Hicks is similar to, they call it like a false labor. So there, it's like this, and like early on, during like the, in the like second trimester, it was this sensation of like tightness, your belly, like really stiff and tight. Mm -hmm. And then after you lay down or you change your position, then it will go away. Like that all the time. And so I thought, oh, I, had, I have had so many practices, then I'm sure my labor will be wonderful. Will <laughs> <laughs> be yeah. And so later on, then I, after I, I was in Chiang Mai, I had a couple of Braxton Hicks again, and I thought it was, yeah, it's it felt like labor. I it was getting intense, and it was close by to each. Uh, each uh, what do you call them? Each, each search very close by. The and then I thought, oh, yeah, the frequency was closer yeah. together. And so I thought that uh, that's it. Then I just try to relax. I will try to go to the hospital as late as possible. The problem with the first labor was that I went in way too early and I was only one centimeter dilated. I was at the hospital and then they checked me all the time. They told me not to move. I had to just stay in bed and all that. So it was. So then this time I learned from the first time, I will not go to the hospital early. I will try to soak myself in warm baths. I will let my husband massage me. I will do the breathing. I prepared all that. And then, yeah, Braxton Hicks, I try to lay down, calm, sleep, get as much sleep as possible. I woke up, it was gone. <laughs> It was gone. It was like that a couple of times. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. It's a great practice. Then, and then one day it was so like, intense and it got so close to each other. And, and the surges were already like the intense one. And it was like a bit painful already. And then I, 
then yeah i thought that was it again and then it went away again they then asked uh, my support group and they said that it might have been a, a prodromal pro pro labor wait i think i'm getting it wrong normal labor pro i cannot remember the term it can be caused by stress or different things that like the baby is not in the position so the body is trying to the baby in position or there's something wrong okay so that's probably like what what happened and then then it was like reaching 40 weeks actually at 40 weeks that's when i had that labor and, and yeah and 40 weeks went by and then no sign yet Mm-hmm. Uh, but I actually not not intentionally. I told the wrong due date to the hospital. I because I remembered my both my husband and myself. We remembered that my due date is supposed to be on Thursday. But the, once we calculated and we looked at it again, it's actually should be on Monday. So we have been like so this other hospital then think that my due date is not there yet so they think that my due date is on Thursday and when on actually on Monday that is the due date so it's actually good because I had a couple of days more yeah and so then on my the due date that I told the the, that the hospital in Chiang Mai knew that there was the due date. It was the 17th, right? And I, at that point, early in the morning, I felt, I thought I had pee on the bed. I thought I, I peed a little bit on the bed. And then when I got up and I went to the washroom, I saw like a gush of water, like a gush of water came up. And so I knew that this is the amniotic fluid. And and then I called my doula, the my friend, my the midwife. They said to wait. Your labor should be within should be within twelve hours. Twelve hours. Okay. So this was a day before my due date. That my amniotic fluid. It was a sixteen. And then, yeah. And so, okay. Then I waited twelve hours. Nothing. No contraction. Like no no real contraction so i was still i was like getting nervous because the doctor the 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 hospital told me all the time that if if your water breaks you have to come to the hospital immediately and then but then i didn't want to go to the hospital too early so i waited and after 12 hours he didn't come. Then I thought, okay, so within 12, 24 hours, most of the people who whose water has been broken should go into labor. And then after 24 hours, nothing. I was getting like, okay, so one, one, one part of me wanted to go to the hospital but another part of me, if I don't have contraction, then they will put me on pitocin. And that increases the risk of my uterine abruption. And so if you do a feedback, you should do it naturally. Like you shouldn't try, shouldn't induce the pitocin. So I was scared of that. And I, I didn't want to 
like yeah and then also try not to go on any medication because if you are you if there's a uterine abrupt abruption then you won't be able to feel the pain and you need to be able to tell if this pain is a normal pain or if this pain is a weird pain right then yeah 48 hours and nothing oh my gosh and so i decided because I was worried as well, but then there are different researches. So some research tell you not to go after 24 hours. Some research tells you not to go up to not to go be beyond 48 hours. And also, and then the British research told you not to go like within 72 hours, you should deliver your baby. But at the same time that I was that I wanted to ha- have this natural contraction. I was also scared that what if the amniotic fluid isn't enough? I know that it also, it what do you call that? Re- re- Lubricates. Re- it will, the body continues to make amniotic fluid. Mm. So it will not go away. It go will, dry. Yeah. It, it won't go dry. If I drink a lot of water and all. So I have this, when I walk, water gush, like gushes out. And I had to change so many paths. It was just coming out. And I was so scared that it might be out more, like faster than you would be able to treat it. Yeah. And so then I went to another hospital. I, and it was, it was another hospital. I went for like a screen, what do you call that? An ultrasound. So that it's not the hospital that I'm seeing currently. And then if they said I should go on C-section, well, at least I still have, I can still leave that hospital and say, okay, I'll do it somewhere else. Yeah. And then I went, the doctor. And where was the birth going to be? So the birth, the VBAC was going to be in the hospital? Yes, yes. So if you went to the hospital, they would automatically, you were scared that they were going to automatically put you on C-section? They will admit me and probably try to induce labor. Yeah, other ways. And okay, so I think at 24 hours, that's when I went to another hospital and checked regarding my amniotic fluid. And at that time, it came out a lot. And so the doctor said that, oh, your amniotic fluid doesn't look like there's much. There's like about, it, it should be about 500 something. I don't know, like what's the measurement and yours about that. So I was like, okay, that means I'm still okay. <laughs> if I'm still, it already came out a lot, but I'm still at that point. So I went on, right? I went on and up to 48 hours, I was I was getting scared that maybe I won't come, like I won't, my, yeah, that my contraction won't come. So I went into the hospital late at night, emergency. And then I was like, I'm not sure if it's the amniotic fluid or not, but I think maybe it is. And so they checked. And then I don't know what happened. I don't, I really don't know what happened at that point, but they actually checked. They took the fluid out and checked. And then they said, oh, it's not amniotic fluid. I was really shocked. Because there's no way that is not amniotic fluid. What kind of fluid was it? No, I, yeah, I, uh, I'll explain later what my doula suspect. Okay. And after that, then they said, would you like to go home then? 
I said, yes, I would like to go home. And then, and then I went home. And then they scheduled me for the next day appointment to, to visit the doctor. And then it still, my contraction didn't come, didn't kick in. So at that point, I thought I had no other choice. I would have to go in and convince him that it is the amniotic fluid. <laughs> and when I went, I was like, it is amniotic fluid. I think I have it. And they were like, oh, but they, they sent you back. Oh, maybe not and all that. And then I had to try to convince them that it is. Check me. And okay, so I think the, the British that says you can go up to 72 hours, but the risk of it, the risk of it is not the water that is coming out. The risk of it is if anything goes inside so you have to keep your area as clean as possible and don't put anything inside don't put your finger inside don't yeah don't soak in like hot tub or anything as well and yeah and so i was really careful but then the risk that i took was that day that they put that they checked they had to they put their finger inside and then they yeah and so that's the first risk and the risk of inspection will go up once they put the more times they check you the risk of infection increases for sure so yes so then i then finally the doctor said okay come let's go and i'll check and then let's go and check so then when i took off my panties then they saw the water then they're like yes it is you guys enjoyed this podcast i promise you there is a good ending so wait until part two where she gets to say a little bit more about it and we will see you next week in the part two of this episode Woo-hoo!